0: Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are
1: exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you
0: nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level. To stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit and fueled female athlete. Hey fans, I'm here today with Carrie Jackson. She is a certified mental performance consultant in Northern California, and she has been a professional in the field of sport and peak performance psychology since 2002. She is co-author of the book Rebound, Train Your Mind to Bounce Back Stronger from Sports Injuries, as well as co-host of the podcast, The Injured Athletes Club. She's been interviewed as an expert resource for articles that have appeared in publications such as the New York Times, Huffington Post, us news and world report outside magazine shape magazine men's fitness women's health runners world and women's running magazine you can learn more about carrie on her website www.carryjackson.com and of course you're going to learn more about her right here and now as we Yay. have an awesome discussion
2: <laughs> oh, thank you for that great introduction yes you're welcome <laughs> So let's start at the
0: beginning, Carrie. What made you become a mental performance consultant? What got you interested in this space? Not only of mental performance, but specifically with athletes.
2: Yeah. I've always been fascinated with human behavior. So, and with early on with leadership, which I didn't realize in some ways was also a sort of optimal performance, but in a leadership role. And so, so I'd always been attracted to that. I did a lot of um, my early career and like college years, I was doing a lot of experiential education, which is a lot of outdoor leadership. And so I, but I didn't know anything about sports psychology. I had been studying psychology and thought I wanted to be a therapist, but then on my own, I had, you know, I was into my own sort of physical activities. I wasn't, I didn't grow up as an athlete. I didn't come into my athletic self until my until I got into college and I I did a little bit of race car driving when I was in college and then I was a rock climber and snowboarder. So I recognized some of the psychology of that was happening for me but didn't I didn't have any language for it. I didn't have any understanding of it because it didn't I didn't know it existed. So then I graduated and I didn't think I wanted to be a therapist. It wasn't quite it was before the positive psychology movement and it just wasn't making sense to me. Like I really wanted to work on I didn't know it at the time, but I wanted to work on optimal performance and and it wasn't the paradigm that we were using at that time. That's not what it was more about illness than wellness. So I decided to move to Tahoe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I was going to grad school and then I was like, I'm not going to grad school. I'm going to move to Tahoe and and play for a couple of years. And that's when I really started to understand the psychology of of my own performance and coming back from an injury and and then it just so happened my mom found a brochure of uh, an open house for a sports psychology graduate program. and I was like, "What is this? Oh my god and uh, and went to the next open house and signed up so and and just like I had no idea what I was going to do with the degree when I start. I just knew like, this is what I'm looking for and just kind of hit the ground running.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I was drawing parallels in your career field of psychology. And at that time, it was more about illness and wellness. And I can draw parallels to the nutrition world with that too. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of nutrition being medical nutrition and, you know, treating people who are sick and all that. But it's like, but I, I always want, I always approach nutrition from that wellness standpoint of like, how can we use it to be even better? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. So yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So I had a very similar experience of like, I got into it, but then I was like, wait, this isn't really what I want to do.
2: It's like, <laughs> now what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now what? Yeah.
0: And then, um, so obviously you've done, you do a lot of work, you have the injured athlete podcast and kind of your, your book is about that as well. Like with that positive psychology sports performance aspect, how did you then come to specialize
2: in injury, the injured state. Yeah. An injury. Uh, I, so I had gone through an injury before I knew about sports psychology Mm -hmm. and, and I had a very hard time regaining my confidence coming back into my sports. And especially at that point, it was a, a knee surgery and trusting my knee Climbing again with certain moves, I really struggled. And I struggled with the rehab and the pain management. And I just, it was a tough recovery and it wasn't even a major surgery. Then, fast forward when I went into the graduate program, I ended up injuring my knee again, same knee, but a different injury. And I was snowboarding. And l- literally, as they're bringing me down the mountain in the sled, I made the decision of, like, okay, I am going to take everything I'm learning in my cl- in the classroom right now about optimal performance for athletics and exercise and apply it to my injury. And I just I I made the decision, I made the commitment to do that and I took everything I was learning and applied it to that situation and which is how I came up with that idea of okay, my recovery is now my sport. And everything I was doing for snowboarding I'm putting into my recovery. And I came back and had the best season ever. It was just absolutely incredible and so profoundly different than my first injury recovery that I was like, oh my God, okay, this is this is important and this is something that needs to be out there. But I still didn't even really start specializing it, in it early on until I worked with a lot of injured athletes. So I was working with a lot of cyclists. And when you work with cyclists, you're inevitably going to work with injured athletes and people coming back from crashes. And so working with them and then also doing some support groups in colleges helping injured athletes and just saw the need, saw that there was this huge gap, like at a time when people were needing the most support, they were getting the least and, and how much of an impact it had that it was like, all right, it's time to specialize in this. Like there's not enough, there's not enough resources out there for injured athletes and I need to do something about it. (laughs) So then it became my mission.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's a time when people need the most support and sometimes it can feel like you're getting the least, you know, you're isolated from your teammates or your training, your, your support systems, everything. And that is when you need the most support. It's like when, when you're good, things are good, but when you're bad, things
2: are really bad, right? Like that's when we need the help. Yeah. And then they're like, we even have the term sidelined, which I hate because it's like, all right, you go over there and we'll, and, and, and good luck and let us know when you're better. And then we'll, we'll talk to you then. Like, oh my God. Yeah. It's just, it's mind blowing. It's just mind blowing. And it's just because people didn't have an understanding or resources and didn't understand what an impact the mental training could have, that there are things that you can still do. I think that's, the, you know, so much of injury is the, the physical that you think like, well, you can't do anything until you're back. So we'll talk to you then. Like, oh my gosh, no, that's not, like, there's so many things. Like, not only do they need support, but there's so many things that they could be doing that make, help them stay connected to that athletic identity.
0: Would you be willing to share what are some of those things? (laughs)
2: Like, we could go have, you know, talk about this forever, but like, you know, I don't know
0: if you have any like quick tips for some listeners that might be injured right now and they're thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, what
2: what do you suggest? Yeah, I think the first aspect of it, like the way to hold it, the space as an injured athlete is to know you're still an athlete. You're still an athlete and your recovery is now your sport. And now your job as an athlete is to recover and take care of yourself and help your body heal. It's just, you know, if you're privileged enough to call yourself an athlete for long enough, at some point, there's a good chance that this will be part of your journey. So to recognize it as like, okay, it sucks, And I would prefer to not be injured, but this is part of, this is where I'm at in my athletic journey. So what do I need to do? So sort of holding it in that space so that you can connect to that athletic, you're still an athlete. I think that's the part that's really hard is people feel like, well, who am I if I can't do my sport? I'm not an athlete if I can't do the thing. Like, that's not true. You're still an athlete. So now how do we apply that? So one big thing is like really deliberately redefining your goals and now making them So a lot of athletes, you know, they understand goal setting or their training plan. So now you're putting in your recovery activities into that training plan. So you're you're continuing that process of staying connected to your motivation and building your confidence by working towards goals. But you need to make sure you redefine those goals and make them specific to your recovery instead of holding on to that goal that you had in mind before you got injured. Because if you don't do that, there's going to be part of your brain that's always sort of gauging where you're at based on that original goal, which is no longer realistic. So, so you got to take that off the table and go, okay, so what's the goal now? And that I don't need to gauge my feelings of success on that original goal. Cause that's not where I'm at now. Cause that's also
0: what perpetuates so many negative feelings around when you're injured. It's like that comparison of where you're at compared to where you think you should be. Yes. You think you should be striving for these other goals, but if you reframe your goals and recognize what I should be doing is going up the stairs once today. That's my new goal. Would I, you know, pending your injury status. And then you're like, Oh, I did that. And now you're in a more positive mental state because you're accomplishing your goals of recovery.
2: Yes, exactly. And really recognizing that as an accomplishment, right. That, 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 that step, but like going up the stairs is just as huge as you finishing your marathon. If that's your, you know, that, that you have to, it helps you redefine your, how you're gauging your success, which is really, really critical during that time. So yeah. But the like rebound, I mean rebound, the book Rebound has all of the tools that I work on with all of my athletes. Like it had like if you want some, if you want to know what to do, like it's all like there's so much you can do and it's and it's all in that, you know, all of those resources are right there in the book. I think the other piece in there that's critical for injured athletes is it's so hard when you're injured to not just stay focused on the things you can't do. So really shifting your focus to like, okay, what is, what are some of the things I can't do? I know that the, here are all the things I can't do. And then when you stay in that space, it does not feel good. So really shifting, you know, a lot of the, the tools in there are how can I bring myself back to the present moment, accept what's happening so that I can regroup and take action on what I can take action on.
0: Yeah, those those are three great tips right away. So of course, your book will give even more. But <laughs> yeah. make recovery your sport. Yes, to deliberately redefine your goals and three shift your thinking into what you can do. Yes, exactly. That's really really great. You know, something else that you said. It's like I I've I know it and I've said it before, but however you phrased it, I kind of had this like light bulb moment that. You know, I've said before, like, every every athlete's going to get injured at some point in time the longer you do athletics. And I'm not trying to encourage injury. I'm not trying to normalize, like, not taking care of yourself, you know. Like, I, I want you to do safe athletic practices and not overtrain and, and all that stuff. But, like, yeah, the longer you are an athlete, like, there's going to be something, something yeah. at some yeah. point. And I think just normalizing that is really Important. And I don't know why I had this light bulb moment when, yes. when you said that, but I did. Of like, why do we, I don't know if I'm using this term right, but like, yeah, why do we sideline yeah. people when that's part of being an athlete?
2: Yes. Right. Yeah. So many people, like the majority there, I have met some athletes that had never got injured during their career, which is amazing and wonderful. But the majority of athletes at some point you're going to be dealing with an injury. So why not, you know, support that part of the process too. It's just part of the process. It's part of your path. Yeah. So
0: I don't know why I'm like so stuck on this.
2: But just, like, having... <laughs> no, I love it because like that, for me, that was a, a significant sort of part of the mission, right? Because, yeah, because the way we're viewing injury, I mean, you know, like they're big news. Like you're always, you know, anytime you tune into ESPN, you're going to hear about injury every day. You're going to hear about somebody's injury. It's such a big deal, but we're not really supporting the athletes through it. So it's like, we're all talking about it. It's going to be a part of the process. So how can we you know, and, and part of it, I think for so long, people just saw it as like the worst thing that could happen. And it is a very challenging thing that could happen. It doesn't have to be the worst thing that could happen. And so normalizing it in that way that like you are still an athlete. You're still a part of this team. Here are the things that you can do. So helping coaches and helping athletes know like here's what you are doing. You are still a part of the team and now you're training. Pl- day is you're going to do your visualization or whatever the tool is that the and and helping to normalize like yeah instead of it being the worst thing there might be an opportunity here and let's seize that opportunity or let's take this opportunity okay you can't be you know physically active this is what we're going to work on right now in terms of your dedication to your athletic self and your sport and that that's okay
0: so another thing kind of coming to mind just in myself and with clients and athletes that have worked with is sometimes we have that really dedicated mindset and approach. If I am going to take recovery, you know, very seriously, this is my new sport, but then we face like setbacks, you know, where recovery didn't go as planned. Like trainers told us, physical therapists told us, you know, six weeks in the boot, and it's been eight weeks and I'm still in the boot or that MRI didn't go well. Or I thought I'd, you know, be, or, okay, I'm back, but I'm not back anywhere near the level I thought I was supposed to be. So there's, I think it's one thing to be like, okay, approach your recovery with this very athletic mindset. But then what about when recovery seems to really drag on?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a significant So we, I talk a lot about the emotional roller coaster of injury recovery, and there's just, you're going to have these different time periods where you're, (laughs) the more challenging emotions are going to spike. So, you know, you could, there's just so many emotions you're going to feel throughout the injury recovery process. And sometimes you feel like all of them on the same day when you're like, oh, I feel really great and everything feels great. And I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then you experience a setback or you feel something in your body and you're like, "Uh uh-oh. What does this mean? You know, and your thoughts start to spiral. So you can, it just sends you on this emotional roller coaster. And encountering a setback is one of those times where it's normal for it to send you on an emotional roller coaster. Um, so with setbacks in particular, one of the things that that could be helpful is to to really try to not spiral. There's a couple things. Like one is to remind yourself, uh, and this can be both physically and emotionally. Actually, like how I'm feeling in this moment. Is not necessarily how I'm gonna feel tomorrow or a week from now. Like, so because our brain wants to grab it and go, oh God, what's happening? And like, and feels like this is what it's gonna be like forever. So just triggering that as a reminder to your brain, like, you're safe, you're okay. How you feel right now is not necessarily how you're gonna feel tomorrow or for the rest of your life, because that's what your brain's trying to like generalize it. And then the other piece is, this is another tool from the, from the book that I really love. It's called go far. So go far means like, if you want to go far in your recovery, you need to, it's an acronym for, you need to be able to feel, accept, and recover. So feel is you got to, go on the emotional roller coaster. You have to allow yourself to feel your feelings because what often happens is we fight against it. And when we fight against the feeling and fight against what's happening, we prolong that part. We prolong how long it takes for us to then come back to the present moment and be able to focus on the recovery. So feeling your feelings, whatever those are, and really identifying the specific emotions that are there. That's why we have this um, other activity called the emotion decoder because we're not really good at like, labeling emotions. We're like, this feels good. This feels bad. We just like clump them into these categories. There's many more emotions
0: than that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) A lot. So you want to look at like, oh, I'm feeling grief or I'm feeling confusion or I'm feeling guilt. Like you want to pinpoint, like, what are you feeling and allow yourself to feel it. So then that helps you move into a place of acceptance. Like, okay. And the the language I like to use with that is like, I would prefer that this isn't happening because that helps us stop fighting. Like, the prefer instead of like, why is this happening? I can't believe this is happening. I don't want this to happen. It's like, okay, I would prefer that things were different. I would prefer that this isn't happening, but this is happening. So now what do I do about it? So that's the acceptance into the recovery. So that's what helps you then get grounded again in the present moment so that you can focus on something that's in your control. Like, okay, what can I do? Man, the time, I mean, you hit on a big one too. Those timelines that get set out, like, I see athletes get tripped up on that so much. I almost wonder, I've been playing with this idea of like, I wonder what it would be like, which would never happen because people need a guideline, but I wonder what it would be like if they didn't give them any kind of guideline for recovery because that's every time. And I don't think that's the answer either, but I keep playing with this idea because people get hooked by the expectation and then when they're not better in six weeks, And maybe that just was not a realistic timeline for your body. And sometimes we don't know that until you start the recovery process, but your brain grabs that and then you're not there and you're like, what, what the hell, man, like you told me six weeks and it's not six weeks. And then you freak out when really it's like, we were wrong. Your body needs 12 weeks. Like we were just wrong instead, but we grab that so tightly. I
0: know. I'm drawing parallels again to nutrition. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah. That's so true. Of um, Ugh. like and and working with clients that do maybe resonate with, let's say, an eating disorder. And we might be holding them back from sport. So that's a different type of it's it's a type a form of injury, right? Yeah. And yeah. then we might say, like, take 12 weeks off of sport until you're fueled and you're you have energy available and like you're further along this eating disorder recovery. And it's like, sometimes that's, that's not a good timeline. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Um, Cause the athletes that go, like, great. They get to the exact date and it's like, I'm done. And they think that's it. I'm done. Instead of like, let's check in, let's make a six. Wh-. So instead of six, just six week check-in six week, 12 week check-in. <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> to actually, I'm, I'm going through this <sighs> with one of my
0: clients currently actually. And I said, uh. the plan is we're not, Training and she was on board with that. She actually came to me knowing that, knowing that she because of what was going on with her nutrition, this was her injury. And so she was on board and ready to commit to not training. But she was like, But when can I? And I said, We'll check in at six weeks. We'll check in. So (laughs) we're at a check-in standpoint now. That's
2: awesome. But we're just checking in.
0: Yes. And and another like parallel with nutrition that I'm thinking too is something i I don't talk, I'm not saying that this is right or wrong, but in my practice, I don't set goal weights at all, regardless of what the situation is, disordered eating or not at all. Like even my completely like not athletes that have nothing to do with disordered eating, I still don't set goal weights because that's another thing of, well, if I reach this weight, will I then be healthy? Will I then be faster? Will I then be stronger? Will I then be It's like, will I then have my period? Will I then have my hormones? Will I then have my blood biomarkers? Like I don't set those goal weights because then you're going to get to that weight. And if everything's like not there, then we're thinking like, that wasn't right. And so there's just so many parallels. I wonder, cause there's a way with nutrition that I can, I'm somehow getting by with not setting super strict timelines or goal weights. And so it's an interesting parallel with injuries. Like what if we didn't say you'd be in the boot for six weeks? Like, yeah. I don't know because it also like, they lose their minds. They lose their minds. (laughs) That's the problem.
2: When you have a timeline, you have hope. I get it. I get it. Yes. So maybe it's that check it. It's the idea of like, what we're going to do is check in in six weeks and see how you're progressing. Stop giving set timelines because it's making them crazy. It's really hard. It's really stressful for the athlete.
0: Well, and I even think whether or not your provider is giving you a timeline, I hope that everybody listening to this can kind of make that mental yes, shift. Of, absolutely. Regardless of what the doctor said or whatever of like, oh, 12 week recovery, like in your head, try and think this is a 12 week check-in.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Because they're within a system where they're, you know, that's their that's what they're used to. You're not going to change that system, but you can change, absolutely can change your mindset and hold it that way for yourself.
0: Yeah. I like this. I'm yeah. gonna use this myself. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I think even in my experiences with injury, yeah, nothing's really gone to plan. Yeah, it rarely does. <laughs>
2: yeah. And it always took longer. Yes, it always right? took longer. I, I gave I gave that analogy one time too, doing another podcast interview where it's like, I sort of feel like it's like contractors. You just have to add at least another month onto your recovery and probably more. Right. It's just like because Uh, very rarely it does. I mean, I shouldn't say that there are times where like people, you know, depending on the injury, but everybody's body is different. Every injury is different. You know, it just, recovery rates are different. So it does happen where it's like, okay, I'm ready, but uh, maybe we need to hold it more like the contractor doing the remodel where it's like, uh, well, we ran into some things.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's so true because you typically do run into other things, right? Like you're treating one injury, but probably during that injury, other things were affected or, you know, I'm thinking about myself. Like one time I had this like extra bone in my ankle and had to have surgery. Well, great. I had the surgery recovery from the surgery should have taken a certain timeline, but because of the damage that was happening, like I had so many ligaments and tendons that were Mm. screwed up that took way longer yeah to repair because it wasn't just about the surgery it was about everything else you know exactly
1: yeah okay fans i'm going to pause this conversation to let you ladies know about the rise up nutrition coaching program we have a lot of ways that we can help clients here at rise up nutrition and this is one of two amazing opportunities to get the direct help you need With our team of sports dietitians, this program helps adult female athletes fuel to perform without strict dieting. Ah, how good does that sound? Finally, you will understand nutrition for day-to-day training. Eat intuitively with foods that you love and be race day or competition day ready with energy and confidence. We have more details about what's included and how we can help on our website RiseUpNutritionRun.com slash group coaching. Links are in the show notes, but I quickly want to share what a few of our clients have said about their experiences in this program so far. Sophie, a trail runner says, quote, I really encourage anyone who has struggled with eating and lives an active lifestyle to consider this program because it's so hard to know if you're fueling properly without someone on the outside looking in from an objective point of view. I now feel confident in my food choices and more than anything confident that I can actually eat more and that it will only benefit my health and my training. Sarah, another one of our clients and triathletes says, "Quote: for anyone that is struggling with diet culture, a history of disordered eating, and is trying to learn how to eat and fuel, this is a program they should strongly consider. I've been active my whole life and trying to fit a mainstream diet has never worked. In fact, it's created more problems than good. Working with Rise Up Nutrition has made things very simple. So again, if you are an adult female athlete that wants to perform better without strict dieting, Click that link in our show notes to apply to the Rise Up Nutrition Coaching Program, and we would be thrilled to have you join us. Until then, we will get back to the conversation. Really interesting. So, okay, so you host,
0: you're a consultant in this space. Yes. You host a podcast,
2: but you also actually have like a club, the Injured Athlete club. Yes. Yes. The internet athletes club. So one of the really powerful things I've seen in my experience with the work that I do is how powerful it is to have a community of people that get it. And so that was one thing that I had thought about for a while. It's like, well, how can I create a space? And, you know, cause it's, I saw the value in when I would run these support groups, uh, how much the athletes got from each other and being able to talk to each other and it was so powerful. And I've seen that experience in diabetes training camp too, which is another you know thing that I'm a part of that yeah I want to talk you about know the that community. Later. yeah they, like you know just being able to be there with other people that are in your exact space Position and then get it. They're just going to get it on a level that nobody else will. That there's such tremendous power in that, like connecting with your tribe. And so I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to do this online. And so when we started to think about uh, things, we wanted to we wanted to generate some excitement about the book. So we decided to start the podcast. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do a support group on Facebook. And it's a private group, and you just have to answer a few questions in order to get accepted. We hold that space very sacred and protect our community. So. So we we really look at every single person that asks to be in there, and it's just, oh my gosh, a tremendous community in there so if you're an injured athlete and you're on Facebook, I know some people and some people even they're like, all right, I'll just join for the for this group because I haven't figured out a good space to do it anywhere else, but it's just like they people It's amazing to watch these athletes in that group support each other, like people reaching out for support, reaching out for help, asking questions, and so many people coming in to answer, people sharing their wins. Like, it's a really fun, amazing group. So that's been a a really cool part of this is – creating that community of like hey you're not alone because like you said earlier it just you really feel isolated when you're like i can't be with my people i you know i can't do my sport i can't do the thing that i love so it's already such an isolating experience so to have a place where you can go and be like you're not by yourself at all
0: yeah i love that i i think what you said finding your tribe is important and this is important for all the different stages of your life and many different tribes you might be a part of, but it's like mm-hmm. your, your team, your sport is very much your tribe. And although now that recovery is your sport, you kind of need your recovery, your injured athlete tribe. Yeah. To get you through some of those tough moments. And you also have a, a new rebound lifestyle Ment- mental training membership. Yes. And I'd love for you to talk about that and maybe also just how it's different from the injured athletes club.
2: Yeah, so the la the final chapter in Rebound is called Rebound Lifestyle. And it sort of talks about like how do you take these skills and transfer them to the other areas of your life? Cause it's one of the Uh, Kind of amazing things that comes out of if you really dig into your mental training during your injury recovery to help with your recovery and then help with your transition back to sport, those skills are going to pay dividends. They're going to continue to help you now because they're transferable then to optimal performance. And so athletes will find – oftentimes that's why athletes will find like – they sometimes come back physically and mentally stronger because they when they've done that and apply it to other areas. And then I realized, like sometimes my favorite thing when I'm working with athletes, one of my favorite things is you know, we're working on their optimal performance for their sport. But inevitably, they'll take some of the skills and and try them in other areas of their life, and they'll come back to me like, "Oh my God, Gary, I did this interview, and I, did, I decided to do a pre-performance plan and the breathing, and I nailed the job, you know, so it's just so fun for me to see that. And then, you know, so then I started to think about like, oh, you know what, how, the, the, there's something about like pe- athletes also want mental training for life. So oh, people yeah. that, so that tr- specific tribe of that athletic mindset, but now looking at like, oh, how do I apply this in other areas of my life? Mm-hmm. That was sort of the catalyst for for starting the membership. So that's, yeah. So Rebound Lifestyles, people get like a mental training. We, I just did a, a huddle today. So we do live huddles once a month and people get a mental training tool of the month with all these handouts and worksheets and videos kind of taking you through this tool. Because a lot of times we just don't think about things like belief in your ability, confidence, focus, goal setting, motivation. We don't think about those things as skills but they are skills. And so I give people the tools to be able to know how to strengthen that as a skill, like see it as a skill and strengthen it. And so there's, there's all kinds of other fun stuff in there in the membership too. Yeah. I resonate
0: with this so much because I feel like when I think about my life experiences as an athlete, it's like being an athlete has not just given me, you know, fitness and athleticism. It's, it's given me confidence. Yeah, It's given me goal setting skills. I feel like being an athlete, not only is that relating to being a sports dietitian, but like literally like the ability and the skill set for me to build a business and like pursue my goals and to have confidence showing up like that's from athletics. That's from that mindset of what sports have taught me. So yeah, I think that's huge that sports is not just helping you be physically, you know, fit. It's, that mindset, those, that's a huge skill set that you can apply to any area of your life. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I often tell people about the, when I did the, wrote both the books, like I had to use all of my mental training skills in order to make that happen. Right. They, they're just their life skills and it's how to, you know, how do I, where do I want to apply this?
0: And going back to the injured piece too, when you as an athlete overcome the difficulty of an injury, like what, you're, you're learning so many skills of just, you know, facing adversity that will help you in life as well, because we all face challenging times in life. Yes. Too.
2: Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's a lot of what the membership, I mean, the rebound book and then, and transferring into the membership, really a lot of it is about teaching the skills of resilience because there isn't ever a time when your mental training isn't going to be able to help you we, there isn't ever a time where we're not going to need skills of resilience because you're just, that's life. We're always going to be faced with something. So why not get good at that skill of being able to bounce back?
0: Yeah. So, you know, another way that you are helping people with their, their mental skills training is, as you already mentioned, is it athletes or people or both with type one diabetes? Yes,
2: both. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, athletes are people, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if it was specific only to athletes. No, great question. No, yeah, it's um, like a- anyone living with type one or type two. Yeah, yeah. For a long time, the camps were just type primarily type one, but now we also have type two camps, which is super awesome. Okay. So yeah, so but, uh, but athletes, exercisers, people that are just trying to figure out like how do I manage my blood sugar with exercise because that it just adds in a whole different factor. Yeah, yeah. So everybody- How did you get into that? That is interesting. So that, when I was- Gr- graduating from college i ended up w- just randomly working at a camp for kids with type 1 diabetes and it was um you know it was part of my like love of outdoor education and outdoor leadership and so i got to live in Kin- kings canyon which is this just gorgeous amazing place in california and, and slept outside all summer so i did it for a couple summers and you just live outside for the summers and then you run these camps for these kids and oh my gosh, to see like immediately as soon as, you know, some of these kids, and especially at that time, maybe had not been, like their parents were fearful. And so they didn't do any kind of like physical activity or sports or anything like that. And then they come to camp and they're running around and they don't have to explain anything to anybody, why they're giving themselves shots. And they just, you could see their shoulders drop. And it was just this incredible experience. And then a lot of the camp counselors had type one. So I became, you know, became really good friends with a lot of people that were living with diabetes. And then when I was in my program, they asked us to do this. I was taking a class on building a consulting business and they t- were encouraging us to think of different niches we might go into. And I was like, oh my God, it would be amazing if I could work with type one athletes. And I was like, that's never going to happen. That's a pipe dream. Like talk about niche. Like I really narrowed it down. Huge. So me. I was like, I don't know how that's going to happen. And then it just so ha- like randomly happened that I was working with an athlete who was my client. And she was the head coach for, she was being hired as the head coach for this diabetes training camp. So it was before it started. And she had a meeting with the director. And the first thing she said was, you need to talk to Carrie. And she didn't even know I had this desire to work oh, wow. with type one. Had no idea. She just knew my, the mental training and she s- saw what they were doing. And she was like, You need to talk to this person. She needs to be on board. And so, uh, so I don't think I, I think I worked for the camp for a few years before I finally told them, like, you guys don't even know you handed me my dream job. (laughs) It was so crazy. It was so crazy. So soon, like I've been a part of them since 2006 Mm. and just- I did a similar, as part of my- dietetic internship. I did like a one or
0: two weeks at a type one diabetes kids camp. And it really was great. (sighs) You know, I don't have that lived experience of having type one diabetes, but so to be immersed and it's just also right. Type one diabetes used to be called juvenile because you're usually diagnosed as a kid, although you can get it. So it can come out much later in life, which is why they don't call it juvenile diabetes anymore. But but I think there is a lot of there's a lot of a huge need for mental support there because for everybody, for the kid to understand, like, oh, I'm I'm different than other kids. Like other kids can go run around, but I need to have need to test my blood sugar. I need to like taking care of themselves. That's a huge transition and a huge responsibility for. For anybody, but especially for a child, there's a lot of fear for the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that co- deal, I don't know if the word coping is right, but just that the mental skills, like you said, is, is
2: huge. It's significant. Yeah. Yeah. We also have a teen camp for, and we have, um, this was a big dream of mine since we started the camps was to be able to have a teen camp where we have curriculum for the teens and the parents so that we support both of them, like the teen athletes. That one's ju- just athletes, the teen camp, and then helping their parents deal with, with the stressors that come with being a parent of someone with, with of a child with type one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I'm just thinking about is, right, so type 1 diabetes is, for any listener that's just not familiar with it, an autoimmune condition in which our blood sugar is not well controlled because we are not producing insulin. So we have to take medication. We have to take that insulin in order to metabolize our blood sugar. And so another thing that I'm just thinking about is how much stress for anybody (laughs) whether or not you have diabetes stress increases blood sugar. Yes, it does. And so now it's like, okay, we have this condition where we have high blood sugar. And then if we're stressed out or not dealing with our stress appropriately, we've got higher blood sugar. And then we're adding stress of exercise. Now we've got more challenging blood sugar. So is part of like your approach
2: to this also like a stress management Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had a few clients actually over the years where they, and this is common. So for most of the people I've worked with, they're Blood sugar will spike. Like when they get nervous, they feel anxiety, they feel pre-performance butterflies. Their blood sugar will spike. But every once in a while, you get someone where it does the opposite, which is fascinating. So again, it's like everybody's, you know, just like figuring out how your operating system and what happens for you, so you know how to intervene. So I've had athletes over the years where part of our work is, you know, how how can I have the tools to manage the anxiety so they don't get such a big spike, so I don't get a spike where I feel like I need to cover it with insulin instead of like, what are some other strategies? So stress management is a big piece of like putting some of those coping skills into your, into what do you call it? Like the arrows in your quiver, right? Like I need a bunch of coping skill arrows, right? Of like, what can I pull out now? Because that is a big piece. There's so many factors, like just always feeling like, I mean, you're basically making decisions for an organ. It's mind blowing when you really get to know that like people, you know, people that are living with diabetes and what they have to do and how many decisions, you know, in addition to just like being a normal human being, they, on top of that have, you know, think about all the decisions you have to make in a day. It's insane. And they have an extra, what did they, there was an actual study done on it, 180 to 300, a couple different resources had different numbers. I think that one, so another 180 just for every day of decisions. Another 180 decisions yes, to make today? that you oh, have to goodness. make. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. I mean, it's just, and you never get a break. So there are, you know, we we see with the type one community that there's higher you're higher risk for depression and anxiety because, because of all these factors. And so it's critical to both, you know, be able to know how to manage your blood sugar with exercise because a lot of people fear going low. And so they might avoid it or they just don't know great strategies. So that was one of the things we, ta- you know, teach at camp and then just coping skills for life, for living with this. And how do I, How do I allow it to take up a little less bandwidth so that I, you know, it's just, um, there's so many different things. So yeah, mental training is a big part of our curriculum to support that mental health piece. And
0: you are just such a perfect person to work with these people because as you started this conversation, you, you want psychology, like positive psychology, how can this make your life better? And so when you have type one diabetes that can you know, be upsetting, depressing. I, absolutely. It, it's not something that I, I wish for anybody, but you also don't want just because I have this does not mean that I'm limited, does not mean I cannot live life to the fullest. I still can. You can do everything. You can still be a high level athlete. We've got so many pro athletes, collegiate athletes that I was working with recently with type one diabetes. Um, you can do everything. It does take a lot more decisions.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's why somebody like you to help somebody figure out like how how does making these decisions become easier, less stressful Mm -hmm. as so important. Yes.
2: Yeah. It's interesting too with what you do. Like one of the things I think that's been really eye-opening when people come to camp is that, you know, when you are living with diabetes, food isn't just food. Food is a lifeline. Your relationship to food is very different than someone than me, right? Than someone that does not have uh, diabetes. And so helping people wrap their heads around the idea that you have to fuel the athlete like you're not just fueling the the diabetes. Like if you are looking at optimal performance and you want to figure out how, you know, how can you perform optimally? We have to think about nutrition in terms of how do you fuel the athlete and not just thinking about, cause it's just your relationship. There's a shift. there's a mindset shift that happens of like, oh, uh, an understanding of like, oh, my body needs this in order to perform. So how do I make sure that my strategy helps support that the fact that i need these things in order to go do this you know event that i want to do
0: you know and i ran into that the last 2 years i've been working with a collegiate athlete with type 1 diabetes and when i first started working with her part of how she learned to manage her diabetes was was frankly just eating less carbs because it was easier there was maybe less decisions to make less medication to take less Fluctuations in her blood sugar. And so she wasn't eating enough carbohydrate, but then exactly what you said, then she wasn't fueling the athlete side of her. Mm-hmm. Sure. She was taking care and managing the, the blood sugar and the diabetes, but she was not fueling the athlete and it was affecting her performance. Yes. It was affecting yeah. her game. And that's why she was coming to see me because yes. she wasn't coaches were like, she's got to figure this out. She's not making it through, you know, the game and the practices. And so that's what we started with was this is what you need as an athlete. This is what your body carbohydrates need as an athlete. And then how can we, you know, work with the the medication and the diabetes, but instead of treating, I think that was really important shift for her to fuel herself as an athlete first and foremost, which is hard. I think probably a shift I'm speaking just from this one person because she's coming to mind. But again, if you were diagnosed younger and athletics wasn't necessarily like, Maybe you did some youth sports, but you weren't competing at a super high level. It's like you have to grow with it. Maybe when you first saw your nurses or doctors and learned about how to manage your blood sugar, that was one way. But as you get more intense in your sport, Mm -hmm. I think kind of transitioning to figuring out that sports nutrition piece is really important. I don't know if I made any sense there, but (laughs) (laughs) it's just, I think a a shift in, it's one thing to use nutrition to manage type one diabetes, but another thing if you, if you are an athlete as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is really interesting stuff. And definitely, definitely I would encourage anybody who is injured or anybody who is is a type 1 diabetic um, or type 2 I'm not trying to be mm-hmm. selective here. you mentioned that your your work in programming works with type 2 as well.
2: Yeah yes. yeah yeah
0: there's just type 2 gets so interesting because it's it can resemble where our pancreas isn't working so it can resemble very similar to type one or not so much where we're just resistant to insulin. We're still making it but we're resistant. So type 2 can look yeah. a little bit different for sure. It's very
2: complex. It's very misunderstood and very complex. Yeah, because of exactly what you just said. Yeah.
0: You know what else, Carrie? I think there's a lot of stigmas around type 2 diabetes. Yes, which is also why it's really important to work on your mindset, work on your coping skills, work on the psychology and skill set training that you have. Yes. There's a lot of stigma around it and I don't know that we're making any, I don't know if we're making any progress. I haven't worked with the diabetic population too much. It's just mostly athletes that I'm working with. And so when diabetics come, it's, it's few and far between I'll say. So I don't know if there's any progress that you're seeing or experiencing in that field of, is the stigmas around type two diabetes improving?
2: I think it's still very much there because it's so misunderstood. There's a lot of assumptions that are made. Like if you have type two diabetes, it's your fault. Like It's not really how it works (laughs) because, you know, if you, if you think about, if you think that, you know, follow that thread and think it through, because I think sometimes the assumption that's made is that like, oh, if you're overweight, you automatically have type two, which that's not necessarily the case. Or if you're type two, you're not an athlete. That is not the case either. Like, so there's a lot of assumptions that are made around that. And if you follow the thread, then that would mean um, that anybody at any time that, gained a certain amount of weight would automatically have diabetes, type two diabetes. And it's not the way that it works. So it's, it gets, you know, oversimplified and, and so there's still very much stigmas around that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that I kind of recognized that as I was talking, I kept saying type one, type one, and I'm like, wait a second, why am I only focusing on this? So I think that's really important. And I think in the world of athletics too, right? You can be an athlete and type two can yeah. develop. You can Mm -hmm. also have type two and then get into athletics. Yep. And then this is still something that we have to deal with and manage. And you're an athlete either way. So. Yep, exactly. Wow. That I'm so glad that we talked about that piece of this and what interesting work that you're doing. I love, I love that. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the
0: the injury component, but I love that extra, like, I didn't actually know that about you until I was preparing for this podcast that she does work in diabetes as well. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh my gosh. It's one of my favorite things. So actually not next week, the week after I'm headed out to Atlantic city for our Stockton camp. So we get to do all kinds of fun stuff. So anyone out there that's type one athlete that's struggling with like, I don't get how to manage my blood sugar with this whole like athletics thing or just like, or just physical activity. It's definitely diabetes training camp is like, check it out.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think kind of to wrap this up, like how can people, read your book, become part of your membership. We already talked about the Facebook, the injured athlete club. How can people connect with you or, you know, join the, the training camp you were just talking about? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The best thing to do is head over to my website, which is com, and you can get access to all of the resources there. That's where you can find the membership. There's links to finding the book and for injured athletes in particular, you can check out injuredathletesclub.com and there's a bunch of resources over there. And then camp.com is the website for, um, and you can connect with me and you can always DM me, like send me a message. I love connecting with people over Instagram. I'm at feed the athlete, same with, which is interesting because a lot of people will assume like, oh, feed the athlete, you must do nutrition. Like, no, I'm talking about the thoughts that you feed yourself <laughs> and that the, they're also important, it equally is. as important as the food you you fuel yourself with, but, um, so at feed the athlete over Instagram and Twitter, and then mental skills training for athletes on Facebook.
0: Love it. Well, Carrie, I end every podcast with some just slightly different, well, the same questions, nice. but different than what I've already asked you. Okay. If there was one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life, but never get sick of it, what would it be? Ooh, but never get sick of it. Uh, sushi. Ooh,
2: I love sushi so much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's a good one. We've had a few other people say that one too.
2: Oh, nice. It was. I was going back and forth between chocolate and sushi. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a close one. Close one. <laughs> um,
0: what is your favorite sport to participate in yourself?
2: Ooh. Oh, gosh. Right now it's
0: pickleball. That is trending
2: so i know it's super trending i didn't even know what it was and then my cousin was freaking out about it and he's like you've never played and like they have a court at their house and he immediately made me and my husband go play and then we were like oh my god this is so much fun yeah so that's my current one
0: (laughs) that's definitely trending right now we learned it in high school we did in high school gym oh cool and it was oh my god cool but it's definitely trending so it's
2: fun big time (laughs) what about as a spectator is there a favorite sport that you prefer to watch I love, man, I love watching a lot of sports, but I really do enjoy watching football, American football. Yeah. Awesome. What's your team? Well, it was the Raiders, but they left us. So mm. it's <laughs> the 49ers. Okay. All right. That's the team I grew up with yeah. was the 49ers.
0: Awesome. All right. Final question. Is there a female athlete out there? Professional or in your personal life and close network that you want to give a shout out to for just being an inspiration and a role model to others.
2: Oh gosh, amazing question! I might you know because of the work that you do and we sort of talked about eating disorders uh, just a little bit. I I probably would give a shout out to Amelia Boone. Mm -hmm. So she's an adventure racer. She actually was the very first athlete that we. Interviewed on the Interred Athletes Club podcast. And um, she's been really open about her journey with injuries and the connection to disordered eating. And uh, it's just, she's a remarkable, incredible person, a really phenomenal athlete, but just really, um, I think, has had a very big impact on a lot of athletes by being so open about her journey. So she's someone I would give a shout out to.
0: Yeah. Shout out to Amelia Boone. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. This has been a wonderful, Conversation. We appreciate all the work you do, and I hope that people listening learn something, resonated, and will take you up on all that you are offering and the ways that you, you know, can help out our athletes, our injured athletes, and our diabetic athletes.
2: Awesome! Thanks for having me.
1: I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right
0: now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce fit and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash Red S and download the Red S
1: Recovery Race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus, while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including
0: three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, Female Athlete Nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, Head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash that's backslash R E D S and you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes. And I'll see you next time.